Good afternoon and welcome to From Where We Are, stories of news and culture through the lens of USC and Southern California. I'm Stefan Delagordia coming to you live from Studio B in USC's Annenberg Media Center. And I'm Jordan Sheldon. It's October 6th. On today's show, Mona demonstration, dating during the pandemic, and the start of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. All that and more from From Where We Are. I think it's safe to say we all have something on our minds that's infuriating us. We here at Annenberg Radio want to lend an ear to USC students to vent their first world problems. So, Stefan and I spent the last few days asking students, what's your beef? Here's what we got. What is your beef today? What are you mad about? Oh my god, what are we mad about? There's a lot to be mad about in the world, I gotta say. Um, I'm mad at the weather. It's really, really hot, and for no reason. Like, I loved it when it was cloudy uh, the, earlier this week. You could wear hoodies, you could wear sweatpants, and now... Breakups, man. They f***ing suck. I'm heartbroken. I went to FedEx and they were like, we don't have the device to scan your label, so you have to go print it out. And I was like... Then why did you tell me I could just bring it here without printing out a label? Um, I'm not really mad. It's a good day. It's Friday. I'm mad that it's Friday and I have class. I'm having beef with my ex-boyfriend. What's going on there? Um, he's kind of a jerk. He passed by me on campus today and just looked at me and didn't say hi. Honestly, I passed by my ex-girlfriend on campus and uh, she's such a b- didn't even look at me or say hi or anything. I'm not mad about too much. My beef? Yeah, I don't you... have any beef, no man. Beef? I'm feeling good. Yeah, I'm chilling. I'm not really a mad guy. I'm pretty chill right now. Yeah. It's pretty hot. I'm not going to lie. Like, that's kind of annoying. We have a basketball game in an hour. Outside? <laughs> yeah, outside. Kind of. I'm mad about the fact that I have two midterms on my birthday. It's so hot. I have to be on campus right now instead of being at the beach. My beef is inchy squinch. My roommate will not stop insisting that inchy squinchy is a thing. My roommates do not appreciate or even know what inchy squinchy means. The worst part is every time he does it, boy gotta get on the floor, start rolling around like a inchworm after we all told him inchy squinchy is not a thing. Stop trying to make it happen. Early music tunes in 415 and classical music turns in 440 and that's to the A. And I have to tune up my gamba, which is an early music instrument, into 440 and that doesn't want to sit there because they're gut strings so they keep on going low and I'm pissed off. Towards the end of the comic strip, he starts going, oh no, I'm a little inchworm. Inchy squinchy, inchy squinchy, get my way to the home base. My bong wasn't clean this morning and it was supposed to be. (laughs) I'm pretty mad about that. I'm not quite sure what that inchy squinchy business was all about. But anyways, thanks to Miriam Alcala, Matthew Barber, Agatha Blevin, Connor Byers, Anna Curtis, Tyshawn Detaw, Salma Ewing, Caleb Katz, Nico Kazam, Ian Kent, Jackson Lloyd, Lauren Okavat, Ella Sharp, Brittanine Yeah, and Kelly. Wow, that's a, that's a mouthful of names right there. <laughs> An 18-year-old mother was fatally shot by a Long Beach High School safety school officer. Family and community members are outraged and demanding justice. Our reporter, Jacqueline Pinedo, has the story. My name is Austin Rodriguez and I'm here for my sister, Manuela Rodriguez. Mona, we're here for justice. 
On Tuesday, October 6, demonstrators gathered in front of the Long Beach Police Department demanding justice for Manuela Mona Rodriguez, an 18-year-old mother who was fatally shot in the head by an armed school safety officer last week. In addition to Rodriguez's brother, who you heard at the top, the family attorney, Michael Carrillo, is demanding action from LA District Attorney George Gascon. Justice for Mona will start with criminal charges being brought against Officer Eddie Gonzalez. Justice will end when he's convicted of murder or manslaughter charges. That's the very beginning and hopefully the end. But we want something today. That's why we're calling on George Gascon to do something and take action right away. According to reports, Mona was caught in an altercation with a 15-year-old Long Beach High School student. When Eddie Gonzalez, the high school safety officer, approached the scene, Mona jumped into her boyfriend's car. Eddie then shot his gun at the vehicle, resulting in Mona's death. For many in the community, this incident raises concerns over the role of policing in schools. Organizers like Kiana Salina, with the Coalition for Community Control over the Police, have been advocating against police brutality for years. So if Gascon had done his job the way he said he would, this would not have happened. No safety officer who doesn't even have the authority to make an arrest would be ever emboldened away from campus to shoot into a car full of teenagers. At the time of the reporting, Gonzalez was placed on administrative leave by the Long Beach School District. At the demonstration, Mona's brother Oscar demanded for his sister's justice. He spoke to the demonstrators asking for Gonzalez to be charged with murder. The shame that this criminal killer cop is not under arrest. That's right. It's a shame that anybody who would have done what he did would now be in jail, but because he's a cop, he's not in jail. It's a shame. For Annenberg Media, I'm Jacqueline Pinelli. 31 years ago, there was a devastating oil spill in Southern California. But despite the preventative measures put in place since then, there was another spill reported near Huntington Beach recently. Sophia Sue has more on the story. After 126,000 gallons of crude oil began flooding out of oil platform Ellie in Orange County on Saturday, October 2nd, crews are scrambling to contain a spill roughly the size of Santa Monica. This is not the first oil spill in Southern California's modern history, and comparatively, it isn't the biggest either. USC Viterbi professor Najmadeen Miscotti explains. The 69 Santa Barbara, and then there was a 2005 uh, that All-American um, pipeline is off the coast of Santa Barbara. The spill in 1969 was much more than that. It was almost like 3 million barrels. And then uh, this is, of course, much smaller compared with those, at least those two 69 and 2010 Gulf of Mexico is much smaller. While this spill is much smaller, the impact still has serious consequences. The direct impact is, of course, contamination of the beach and closure of the businesses that they cater to the beach goers, to the tourists, and that. That could last between weeks or a month or so. Then there is also another direct impact is the contamination and, and then cleanup, the cleanup cost that you have to go. Sometimes you need to take uh, out the topsoil over there if it's badly contaminated. The cleanup process takes time and it not only has implication for humans but also for marine life. Long-term effect on that, on the sea life and seafood and the marine environment is still a very 
big issue. However, that's a very function of uh, how fast that they could skim this oil and then remove it from the water, or they use dispersant. Because with dispersant, if they spray dispersant on that, that dispersant coagulates the, 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 the molecule of oil and it sinks to the bottom of the sea. And then that could be eaten by some sea creature and it could come back in the uh, food chain. Professor Muscati shares what USC students can do about this issue. I would ask my students uh, and every USC students to, to do is try to stay on the top of the news. Keep yourself informed, keep yourself engaged by writing letters to editors. And the third one is by staying engaged with your local congressmen and women and senators. Tell them that have we learned enough lesson from BP Deepwater Horizon? Have the BP Deepwater Horizon lessons being implemented, both at the federal level and the state level? And those are just a few of the questions to think about as crews continue to clean along the Pacific coastline. For Annenberg Media, I'm Sophia Sue. Two USC programs called Arts in Action and the Art and Climate Collective aim to help students create art that showcases and focuses on social and societal issues. The students' work spans across multiple mediums, including podcasts, poetry, video, and architecture. Grace Harmon spoke with leaders in each program to hear about their goals and motivations. The USC Arts in Action program was created about three years ago as part of an arts and humanities initiative from the Office of the Provost. One of its main purposes is to fund art projects. This is an effort to build and grow relationships with communities in the area. According to lead producer, William Warner, the program was built on the idea that change is created through the process of collaboration. Whenever we create projects or whether we receive applications for funding for projects, we're always looking for the strength of those relationships. It's all about trust, collaboration, and building a process of friendship throughout the, the act creating work. And so that's kind of what, um, what has given the program its success. Arts in Action uses their funding to support students who are using art to explore social justice issues like homelessness, mass incarceration, and healthcare inequalities. They have had partnerships with groups like Black Lives Matter Los Angeles and the Los Angeles Unified School District. USC Provost Charles Zukoski encouraged the program and explained that by, quote, partnering with the communities and neighborhoods of Los Angeles, with the purpose of promoting positive social change through shared artistic endeavors, Arts in Action is first and foremost a community effort. Within Arts in Action is another program called the Arts and Climate Collective. It started last spring. Like Arts in Action, the collective gives students financial awards. These awards are used to help fund projects that use art to explore sustainability and environmental justice issues. Colin McClay is one of the collective's co-founders. He founded it with recent USC graduate Hannah Findling and Roski School of Art and Design professor China Adams. McClay is also a USC communications professor and the executive director of the Annenberg Innovation Lab. He feels like art is an important storytelling tool. This is because it can help people care about climate change by engaging their emotions. The piece that feels to me that has been missing is the storytelling piece, the translation piece that helps us to understand and, com and contextualize that research that helps us to understand what we can do individually and collectively to address 
um, the, the, the challenge before us. Both Arts in Action and the Arts and Climate Collective are currently accepting project proposals from students. Arts in Action proposals are due this Friday, October 8th, and Arts and Climate Collective proposals are due October 29th. For Annenberg Media, I'm Grace Harmon. Dating in 2021 is more accessible than ever with dozens of dating apps and places to meet people, especially on college campuses. Victoria Hunt took to USC's campus to ask students how they navigate the dating world. The sun is setting earlier and the temperatures are dropping in LA, which means that cuffing season is officially in full swing around USC. With that comes the hunt for the perfect big or little spoon. But where are Trojans turning during this time of need? For some, dating apps, others, bars, and even an Instagram page for anonymously calling out your campus crush. But dating apps can be sketchy and a long shot, right? Well, not for Caitlin Bowen, a grad student in the public relations and advertising program. She found her new boyfriend, all thanks to Hinge. So one of the problems I have is that I really liked 90 Day Fiance. He liked my photo and wrote that he was a huge fan of Big Ed. He told me that he would love to take me on a tour. And that was our first date. It's been about a month and a half. It's cool that we're official now. I feel like a lot of the times online relationships and ones started over dating apps tend to move fast. A heartwarming story for sure. But now that people can go out again, are dating apps on the decline? There's something about meeting new people in person and having that initial spark that a dating app just can't replicate. An Instagram page created by USC students called USC Missed Connections is all about that initial spark. The page is dedicated to helping students find their campus crushes that they've seen and met but never asked out. We wanted to see how USC students around campus feel about this parallel between the apps and traditional meet-cutes. Kennedy Bohanna is a senior human biology major, and he's over dating apps. He prefers to meet people the traditional way. I just feel like dating apps are a lot of hot or not, more, of, more than like a let's actually get to meet each other. I wanted to know how the experts are deciphering this reality. I reached out to Natalie Logan, the communications director at Bumble, who sent us some interesting information regarding the app. According to a study they performed, more people than ever are telling their partners what they want and need in a relationship confidently, stemming from dating apps and the intentionality behind being able to choose your partner, kind of like a menu item. But with this in mind, how do you prefer to date? Are you old fashioned and enjoy meeting people in person? Or are you all about that swiping? For Annenberg Media, this is Victoria Hunt. I'm Stefan Delaguardia. We're glad you're with us for From Where We Are. I'm Jordan Sheldon. It's 15 minutes past the hour. Coming up, a USC student battling stage three breast cancer and the sport of curling.
Monday, Facebook, along with associated apps, Instagram, and WhatsApp, shut down. But with WhatsApp shut down, it has become more difficult for students to communicate with families outside of the U.S. Billy Harrington has the story. Platform media outage had vast global ramifications. Facebook and Instagram businesses suffered through over 12 hours of inactivity. And Facebook shares closed down almost 5% on Monday, according to CBS News. But self-reported configuration changes on backbone routers crashed the main method for global communication for billions of users, WhatsApp. Following Facebook and YouTube, WhatsApp is the third most popular social network worldwide, with approximately 2 billion monthly active users, according to Statista. Because the service relies on Facebook servers, the data crash on Monday closed off a very important means of communication that was felt all around the world. For some students, the collapse essentially isolated them from their international families. Talia Aknipar is one such student. She's from Istanbul, Turkey, and said her family never uses apps like iMessage and FaceTime because they have WhatsApp. My sister goes to school in Boston. We only use WhatsApp to like call and stuff because it's kind of what we've gotten used to. So when it went out the other day, it was so weird because I couldn't talk to my parents or anyone for like 12 hours. USC Annenberg alumnus Elizabeth Mayoral likewise uses the apps to communicate with her family in Mexico. So its absence led to a very abnormal Monday. Well, with the audit, it was really, um, it was kind of frustrating, right? I think that's the, the, um, the feeling that a lot of people got when, when social media went down. So, for example, um, I have friends and family in the United States that we use WhatsApp to communicate, and we quickly switch to any other communication, for example, Twitter or also SMS, like text messages, which was really weird. The outage has sparked discourse over whether or not the app is the most stable means for communication. Mayoral also said the fact that Facebook owns all these different social networks is a cause for concern. I think yesterday the audit should make us really reflect or really think about like how a company can own all of that and how it impacts all of our lives, right? Because just with with a glitch or maybe with how one company just went down all of our communications, we couldn't communicate, we couldn't do nothing, like, and not only communicate with our families. While global errors like the one on Monday are few and far between in the broader tech scheme, its effects may reshape the way international students relate to their kin from afar. And although WhatsApp is back to normal now, some users may be a little warier of where the data ends up in their future. For Annenberg Media, I'm Billy Harrington. October tends to be a busy month for USC students. Annenberg Media student Miranda McKeon has been juggling game days and midterms just like the rest of us. But she's also handling something no college student ever expects to deal with, a battle with stage three breast cancer. For Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Claire Fogarty has the story. When Miranda McKeon finished her freshman year of Zoom classes at USC, she thought her sophomore year would finally be a chance to receive that normal college experience she had always wanted. But instead, things turned upside down. My name is Miranda. <laughs> I was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer over the summer, and I'm currently in treatment and having surgery coming up. This might be the first time you have ever heard of a teenager getting diagnosed with breast cancer. 
And that's because, according to the American Cancer Society, the odds of a teenage girl ages 15 to 19 getting it is literally one in a million. I was at my beach house with a bunch of my friends, and I went into the bathroom and was, like, readjusting my top. And so I brushed across a lump, which I hadn't felt before. Miranda immediately began searching on Google. I went down a rabbit hole and I was like, no, I'm so fine. But she went ahead and set up an appointment with her primary care doctor anyway. And a few days later, she got a call. And it was not really the call she wanted to get. That was when her breast cancer journey began. Journey, like, kind of hate the word, but honestly, it makes so much sense. I have received six chemotherapy treatments and I have two more to go. I have a surgery coming up in November And then after surgery, I will receive, honestly, I don't even know how many rounds of radiation, but probably like 20 something. I have a reconstructive surgery um, like eight months after that. Branda has been very open about her cancer diagnosis on social media. I had had an Instagram following because of the acting work I had done in high school. Just a school newspaper, Anne, not the Daily Telegraph. Don't even need it. That was Miranda as Josie Pye on Anne with an E, the Netflix adaptation of Anne of Green Gables, the show she had worked on up until heading to USC. She came into this with already several hundred thousand Instagram followers, and since sharing her journey, she has reached one million followers. You can't really hide that you're going through something, you know, like 90% of my hair has fallen out and... I'm pretty sure my like eyelashes and eyebrows are going to go any day now. I don't know how um, how long or how well I could hide that I'm going through something like this. She was nervous to break such big news to all her followers. The initial reaction was just like an overwhelming outpour of love and support. Oh my god. Yay! I think it's my birthday. What you just heard was one of the many pink parties her friends and family have thrown to support her throughout this process. The celebrating and social media posts are a positive side effect of her situation, but the less glamorous part has been her chemo treatments that have become very routine. I'll wake up, put on a fabulous outfit, do my hair, do my makeup, because I always do like a big Instagram post on my chemo days. She poses with a sign that says what round of chemo she is in, similar to how some kids do on their first day of school. (laughs) And then I head off to the really fun part, which is the clinic. (laughs) Check in, start with blood work. Miranda has been cold capping, which is a process that involves wearing an ice cold helmet before chemo treatment. So much worse than a brain freeze. I don't know why people do it. I mean, I'm doing it because it's the main goal is to prevent hair loss. In my case, hasn't really worked that well. I'm probably down to like 10% of my hair. After putting on the cold cap, she gets the IV set up with the chemo that runs for about five hours. Altogether, it's like a nine-hour day. And then I get home and it's late. And I'll probably feed myself like ice cream or something like that feels like rewarding, you know? If she could, she would tell her past self. And she's going to be okay. She's still living. And living like living well. Like not just like getting by. I'm having a lot of fun this semester. Though this is not the sophomore year that Miranda would have ever expected. She has learned to enjoy the little things and find positivity in her situation. For Annenberg Media, I'm Claire Fogarty. When you think Olympic curling, odds are you probably imagine cold places. And you wouldn't be wrong. And if you also thought the industrial sprawl that is Vernon, California, you surprisingly also wouldn't be wrong. 
Sam Schwartz has the story. Among a trove of textile warehouses, abandoned buildings, and the occasional 7-Eleven sits a little refrigerated icebox. Inside is the residence of a ragtag bunch of curlers right here in Los Angeles. This is a place where anyone can come out, anyone can have fun, and you know, if you want to learn, we're here to teach you. That's Peter Dome, founder and CEO of the Southern California Curling Center, SCCC for short. His plight started with the desire for dedicated curling ice. Ice is our main product, obviously. We, we provide ice for people to curl on. And if we provide bad ice, we provide a bad product. We don't offer anything else. Prior to its creation, curlers across Los Angeles had to play on ice rinks, meaning their shots would be adversely affected by blade marks from skaters throughout the day. But now with Dome's four-month-old creation, that struggle is no more, making him the only dedicated curling center in Southern California. Curling is intense. Just listen to this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Players call curling chess on ice. The chess pieces are known as stones, which are Teflon coated and weigh 42 pounds. The main objective is to have the most stones closest to the bullseye after all 16 have slid to the other side of the sheet. Strategy consists of blocking, hitting, and curling around other weights by sweeping the ice in front of the moving stone. That reduces friction. There are also no referees. Nobody judges you. That's Larry Lieberman, who's been curling for 11 years. You could be the worst curler in the world, and you could be an Olympian. You could play in the same league. No one will say, that person sucks. I don't want to play against them. You go out there and you try to help them. That's just the curling community. All of this eventually comes together in friendly competitions known as Bondspiels, where curlers travel from all across the nation to play, drink, and bond over the lesser known sport. For Lieberman, at these events, he's known as the Pajama Man, playing in nighttime bottoms featuring characters from Mickey Mouse to Superman. And although he does have fun with his title, he notes that it is a greater reflection of curling culture as a whole. It's a sport, but it also is its a family. It's that community feeling that I can go out there and show up and just, you know, be myself, and people are going to accept me for who I am. Much like that of Field of Dreams, Dome built it, and they came. Now with the whole Southern California curling community behind him, Dome has his eyes set on the future, to how curling can shape Los Angeles. Maybe one day we have the next Olympic gold medalist that started at Southern California Curling Center, or we have the next world champion that started at Southern California Curling Center. That's the best part of this, is seeing the opportunities open up for people that definitely would not have had them here otherwise. And with the Beijing Winter Olympics just around the corner, who knows if our next champion will be from this small refrigerated icebox amongst the industrial sprawl of Vernon, California. For Ampersand Radio, I'm Sam Schwartz.
If you've ever wondered about the origins of curious words and phrases, here's Maria Eberhardt with today's Root Source. September 15th marked the start of National Hispanic Heritage Month. But what term do people of Latin American descent actually prefer? Latino and Hispanic are both used to describe the diverse group of people, but these umbrella terms don't always satisfy everyone in the community. In recent years, more and more people are using Latinx to refer to America's second largest ethnic group. But how did this word emerge into the zeitgeist? Latinx originated in the early 2000s in U.S. activist circles as a gender-inclusive version of Latino. The X does not connote a specific gender, but intends to disrupt the grammatical binary and masculine default of Spanish. I think it's really positive. I think it's a really good way to kind of beat misogyny that's kind of woven into a language. I try to express to people the importance of knowing how to identify yourself. Latinx was officially added to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary in 2018, but it is not included in the Royal Academy of Spanish, the foremost authority on the language, as they contend that there is no connection between grammatical gender and gender oppression. Although Latinx has slowly become a more commonly used term, only 3% of the Latin American community uses it, according to a 2018 Pew Research Center study. I identify as Latinx, I mean, obviously. <laughs> I'm not fully like on board with Latinx. Can we just stop using Latinx? Some critics point to its origins among American English speakers, citing that it ignores the phonetic conventions of the Spanish language. On the other hand, some people see Latinx as a gender-inclusive term that reflects a broader movement surrounding gender identity. Latine has also surfaced as another gender-neutral alternative for primarily Spanish speakers. People who say that it's a bastardization of Spanish seem to imagine that languages are petrified rather than part of living, breathing communities. Despite the controversy, these umbrella terms are constantly subject to change and evolving to consider the needs of the community. For Annenberg Media, this is Maria Everhart. And that's all we have time for on today's From Where We Are. Celine Manjola, Erohi Sheth, Spencer Klein, and Guilherme Guerreiro produced today's show. We also got help from Gabrielle Horton. Paulina Cheravoza is our technical operator, and Derek Renfro composed our theme music. We are also streaming live on KXSC. Follow KXSC at kxsc.org slash listen, and on YouTube at Annenberg Radio News. Subscribe to From Where We Are on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more news, be sure to download Annie, Annenberg's news app. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Annenberg Media. I'm Stefan Delagordia. And I'm Jordan Sheldon. From all of us at Annenberg Radio, wherever you are, we hope you'll join us again for From Where We, we Are. are.